Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Maybe this is going to startle you. Um, it, it, maybe it startled me when I realized it. As of today, it is exactly two years since um, a real estate salesman, TV celebrity from uh, Manhattan took the oath as President of the United States. Exactly two years. I know. It seems... Whatever it seems. So it seems... Uh, what it seems like is a um, an appropriate time to open what I call the Donald Trump songbook. And so uh, on today's program, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Um, and And... Fortuitously, it begins with uh, something that occurred this week. You may be aware that uh, the Clemson football team, college football team, Clemson being a university, just just to catch you up, uh, uh, they won the national championship. Yes, we have one now. It took a while. And uh, so, uh, as befits national champions of anything athletic in uh, the United States, they were invited to the White House. And uh, somewhat unusually in these days, they accepted. But this was in the middle of the government shutdown. And so, uh, among other people who are not working, apparently, the uh, kitchen staff at the White House were not available to cater this particular event. And so, uh, <laughs> two years of chuckles, President, <laughs> President Trump uh, announced that he, he would um, instead serve fast food from Wendy's, McDonald's, Burger King, Domino's. And here, uh, here is the pre- president uh, in front of the team and uh, the press presenting and explaining the repast. We have pizzas, we have 300 hamburgers, many, many french fries, all of our favorite foods. Uh, I want to see what's here when we leave, because I don't think it's going to be much. The reason we did this is because of the shutdown. Uh, we want to make sure that everything is right. So we sent out, we got this, and we have some wonderful people working at the White House. They helped us out with this. But in, in moments, within minutes, actually, uh, the president had uh, raised the figure of uh, burgers being presented at the meal to 1,000. And the next morning, Tuesday morning, he actually tweeted that it was over 1,000, as he uh, spelled it at the time. Hamburgers, B-E-R-D-E-R-S, changed the, the typo, but repeated the estimate. It went from 300 at the moment, to over a thousand by the next day. Something to commemorate on this special edition of Hello, Welcome to the Show. Clemson wins their football thing, then they run out of luck. 
They're invited to the White House. Shut down thanks to Nancy and Chuck. We could have just served them water like they're in some two-bit lounge. I said, we gotta feed them. Let's see what we can scrounge. So we ordered up 300 hamburgers, many, many fries, a few dozen hot dogs, about 20 pizza pies. Take it from me, these are big guys. I once tried to own a team. After a day in D.C., they're starving. These kids were out of steam. But one reason Americans love me is I eat their kind of food. So we serve the guys the basics. Nothing grilled or stewed. That's why we ordered 500 hamburgers and so many beautiful fries for these kids from a redneck college. What a terrific surprise. They devoured everything on the table. Hungry like the homeless in tents. We had hoped for a ton of leftovers that our waiters could barter for rents. Who knew where Clemson was anyway till Lindsay told me it was in his state. But these kids, they ended up loving me. They said the food was top rate, almost as good as Trump steaks. So wasn't it 1,500 hamburgers? thousand pizza pies are you gonna believe your favorite president or your lion eyes well there, uh, this is harry shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show the pro- there are people people i know who maintain that uh given certain instances of presidential lying on uh, certain subjects, that there must be deep and nefarious reasons for those lies. And that's that's one perfectly estimable explanation of what's going on. There is, however, I think, another, given the fact that uh, the number of hamburgers grew exponentially within hours, given uh, the president's account, the president's account. And uh, that explanation goes back to him having uh, prevaricated on the subject of the crowd size at his inauguration and prevailing upon others in his administration to uh, go along with him on that. And that was sort of the context in which this week's uh, BuzzFeed News story claimed that... uh, the president had directly instructed Michael Cohen to lie about how long the negotiations lasted for the uh, never built Moscow Trump Tower. You may be aware that that uh, story, which 
generated a flurry of interest on Friday was gainsaid, at least in part, by the uh, uh, special counsel's office Friday evening. A public statement from the special counsel's office, which is uh, quite rare. But in any case, the idea persists that uh, if you work for somebody who uh, doesn't tell the truth a lot of the time, you may end up doing the same. He lies about the Nobel Peace Prize He lies about his favorite bands He lies about his inauguration crowd size He lies about the size of his hands He lies about players taking a knee He lies about the margin of his vote He lies about how much he watches TV He lies about the book that he wrote You know he lies about his female accusers He lies about coal being clean He lies about beggars being choosers He lies about his ratings on the screen He lies about what he may recall He lies about what he forgets He lies about who's paying for the wall He lies about what he paid for his jets He lies about Obama's place of birth He lies because it's day or it's night He lies about his own net worth He lies because it just feels right He lies about Canada and France Maybe even about the Viennese He lies about what's in his pants But up to now, maybe he don't know how He doesn't lie about WMDs This is a special Trump songbook edition of the show. We'll take time out right now for a moment to read the trades for you. This is from Advertising Age. And it's about a bandwagon. NPR's CMO, Chief Marketing Officer, 
on the broadcaster's front row seat at the Voice Revolution. I'll read it for you. Nearly a quarter of the U.S. population now owns at least one smart speaker. And in the last year alone, uh, 14 million people in America got their first smart speaker device. This new research from Edison Research and NPR suggests that voice is no passing fad. It was certainly top of mind for many conference goers at the Consumer Electronics Show. So, it was only fitting that NPR's Chief Marketing Officer, Meg Goldthwaite, joined us, at age that is, to discuss how the broadcaster is approaching this voice revolution. When I first got to NPR, smart speakers were just starting to take off. I had just gotten one from Christmas myself. And we saw this as an amazing opportunity, says Goldthwaite, comparing it to potentially, quote, putting a radio in every home, unquote. When Amazon and Google each launched their smart speakers, and anybody who says it's like putting a radio in every home is clearly a smart speaker. No, we mean the device. NPR was the default news source, according to Goldthwaite. But le- users complained, say, saying they wanted to choose how they got their news. Imagine that. Prompting Alexa to now ask where the listener would like to get their updates from. Of course we would like to be the default. We want everyone to tune into NPR as their primary news source, says Goldthwaite. But frankly, all boots rise when you access different points of view, she says. Still, despite having a leg up as a legacy broadcaster with few national rivals, discovery remains as much a challenge for NPR as it is for other publishers and marketers. The way listeners use their devices is not necessarily evolving, as quickly as the tech. Come on, people. Evolve. Quote, Many people see their smart speakers as a dumb terminal where you can say, tell me what the weather is or set a time for the cake I'm about to bake, says Goldthwaite. Teaching listeners new habits is now part of her job. Her job, just to remind you, NPR's chief marketing officer. She just aspires to something as amazing as putting a radio in every home. We all discover something when I read the trades for you, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, back to um, back to the topic. And uh, there was a press conference where President, <laughs> President Trump was asked about the uh, possibility that Russia had uh, meddled. Not just the possibility, the um, the finding by the nation's intelligence services that the Russians had meddled in the 2016 election. And he was. Uh, it was a joint press conference with uh, President Putin and uh, the aforementioned. And he said, uh, Trump did, I can't see any reason why they would have. And um, sometime later, it came up for uh, further discussion. And the president um, backtracked and said, no, I meant 
I, I think I said, but I meant to say, I can't see any reason why they wouldn't have. Just one word made all the difference. It should have been obvious. I thought it was obvious. It wasn't obvious enough. The media were oblivious to what should have been obvious. That when it comes to Russia, there's no one ever so tough. Instead of shouldn't, you said should. They'll go out and get hurt. You could lose your shirt. You'll be sitting where you should have stood. They'll think you're a babe in the wood. If instead of couldn't, you said could. You'll get a great job But end up like a slob Slinking back to your old neighborhood And who needs that? Just one word It can be so terrifically magical What they heard could be so horribly tragical You could make it all better By adding a letter or maybe two It's not hard to be misunderstood If instead of wouldn't, you said would Just a quick explanation A nice clarification And you end up as free as a bird all thanks to just one word. Well, guess who's writing a book about the Trump administration? Or actually the Trump transition, because he doesn't know anything about the administration. He doesn't work in it. But he did run the transition team um, for a while, or the preparation for the transition team. And then when the transition actually happened, he wasn't there anymore. That's uh, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. He's coming out with a book, as I say, and uh, the first excerpts, previews, teases appeared this week. And um, he, um, Governor Christie, singles out the people who work around Trump. Uh, grifters, ex-felons, um, not not uh, the most charitable characterizations of the people around the, the president, at least in this excerpt. And of, of, as you might expect, if you know the background, he uh, reserves some of his um, greatest obloquy, thank you, for Jared Kushner. Now, there's, there's bad blood between the two because Chris Christie 
put Jared Kushner's dad in jail. You know, the Kushner family is in the real estate business. Enough said. So as I say, Christie, um, at least on the basis of this excerpt, seems to be blaming a lot of what is wrong with the administration on a certain son-in-law. in a normal operation, administration, organization, uh, issues of uh, family wouldn't be so central. Yeah, so, son-in-law, who cares? But um, the Trump organization, historically, has been a very, very family-centered operation. All you had to do was watch The Apprentice to see that uh, the two people flanking Trump in the boardroom were his daughter and Don Jr. And, of course, it was Don Jr. who decided to go to that uh, fateful meeting at Trump Tower where, contrary to what the national media keeps saying, the Russians didn't offer him dirt on Hillary Clinton. Rob Goldstone, a music publicist tasked by a Russian oligarch with getting Trump administration people to that meeting. Rob Goldstone offered dirt on Hillary Clinton. Of course, the meeting was about the Russian team's sounding out the Trump team's interest in 
backing down on the uh, sanctions on certain Russian oligarchs in uh, pursuit of the Magnitsky Act. Yeah, I know. Anyway, yes, uh, that those moments put the spotlight on Donald Trump Jr. Profiled next in the Donald Trump Songbook. When he went to Africa on an elephant hunt, he hit a home run my boy would never ever bunt. Got the tale to prove that he's good with a gun. To me, he was always number one son. Number one son. You know, his mom and I split when he was 12 years old. Later he told me I was distant and cold. In fact, I introduced him to a great deal of fun. Because after all, he was my number one son. Number one son. Good kid, fine boy, that's all I knew. A chip off the not-so-old block. If anyone knocked him, I'd threaten to sue. That's what a dad's supposed to do, wouldn't you? He's meeting with Russians, which was news to me. You can't spell freelance without spelling free. You can't make a hot dog without breaking a bun. Even his siblings knew he was the number one son. You know we reconciled before I started to run Just like the Charlie Chan movies He was the number one son Oh, a high quality person Second to none I barely know him They tell me he's my number one son My number one son Now, news of the warm, won't you? Won't you? Really? Please? Come on. Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. At least 50%, 60% of wild coffee species are considered threatened, according to a study published this week in Science Advances. Fewer than half all the wild species are safeguarded in so-called germplasm collections, banks for seed and living plants kept in protected areas as backups. Wild coffee species are an important source of genetic material for crossbreeding useful traits into commercial crops. Time and again, every 40 years or so, we've gone back to wild populations to use wild genetic diversity to solve specific production problems, says the uh, lead author of the study. 
There's 124 known coffee species. Studying all of them was no easy task. The coffee genus is represented around the world. Each wild species has a very small natural area of distribution. With climate change, coffee is going to be one of those genera, genera that is going to be highly impacted because of its limited suitability for wider eco-regions. Deforestation poses a particularly acute extinction threat. When the forest is gone, that species is gone. And it's very difficult to stop deforestation, says the scientific director of the nonprofit World Coffee Research. He didn't take part in this particular study. He just he just commented. Antarctica is shedding ice at an increasingly rapid rate, rapidly imperiling coastlines around the world as sea levels increase in response, according to a new study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and reported by Axios. The study found that Antarctica has shed ice at a growing rate in recent decades, from 79 to 90, in the 1900s, that is. The average annual ice mass loss rate was 50, sorry, 40 billion metric tons per year. This jumped to 252 billion metric tons per year between 2009 and 2017. The study also contains the worrisome conclusion that East Antarctica, that's the one with all the colleges, has been losing mass since the 1980s. That's important because previous studies had regarded that part of the continent as stable, not yet undergoing net loss. Really big questions, according to uh, a geosciences professor not involved in the study, are whether the recent acceleration in mass loss will continue. That would lead to rapid deglaciation of one or more basins and much faster sea level rise. We don't know the answer to this. We do know the more humans warm the climate, the more likely it is the ice will respond. At least somebody's responding. Uh, uh, Glaciologists need to reconcile the new study's findings, says Axios, with a large study published last year. That study found East Antarctica has not been losing ice so quickly. Get your story straight, fellas. While most developed countries have reduced the construction of large dams for the production of electricity in recent decades, developing countries, including Brazil, have embarked on even more massive hydropower developments. These countries have not accounted for the environmental impacts of large dams. Those include deforestation and the loss of biodiversity. That according to Eureka Alert. So we got no way out. Hydropower used to be clean. That was in the days when there was a radio in every home. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Now, so much has changed, obviously. So much changes in the life of anyone who moves from um, their previous activity to the White House. But for somebody never involved in politics before, living a uh, a civilian life of at at whatever level of wealth might be, in fact, true, uh, there's an even bigger adjustment to life inside the uh, highly securitized domain that is the White House and uh, the traveling appurtenance there, too, like Air Force One. You're always, you're, you're never really, you're, you're in control of the country, but you're never really in control of your own surroundings. This, um, this was an observation noted uh, early in his administration by the <laughs> current president, observing that um, he was a little sad 
that he couldn't drive anymore. And that made its way into the Donald Trump songbook. I'm at the top of the heap Like some kind of Yoda I push the red button Someone brings me a soda You think I'd be happy There's gold rugs on the floor But the deal's going real sappy I can't drive anymore I accomplished so much by my 100th day. At least that's what everyone and my staff gets to say. I've ordered some bombing, very light on the gore. But even that wasn't calming. I can't drive anymore. Enjoy the thrill of my foot on the gas Of driving up Madison Eyeing some ass Can't cruise down the FDR My mind is worn Got to use Twitter Cause I can't honk the hell out of my horn in front of my arrears I thought this would be easy when I walked through the door who could have imagined I can't drive anymore no I can't drive anymore Noting, commemorating, not celebrating, necessarily, the second anniversary of the beginning of the current presidency on this edition of the show. It's very special, very special edition of the show, the Donald Trump Songbook edition. And it, it, uh, it takes us back to when many of us first became aware of the man, the escalator ride down uh, the atrium, down into the atrium of Trump tar, Tower, <laughs> as he announced the, uh, at the time, almost um, unacceptably humorous idea that he was running for the presidency. Uh, many of us didn't believe it. He sure did. That's my band. I own them. Can you believe 
tracks. Believe me, you know I went to Warden. That's an actual fact. Said the Chinese, the Chinese, and the Mexican straight. I'll do it. It's just my greatness that makes me so great. Now I finally get to build some history. I can't believe I'm me. Was. My events are the biggest any human has seen. The networks call me, actually, I call them, but when I do call them, they call me a ratings machine. So don't be stupid, cause you know that I'm smart. Call you disgusting, but I'm nice in my heart. I'm a guy with a self-made pedigree. That's me, and I can't believe I'm me. Trumpets out of here. Those are Bernie's trumpets. Get out of my way. Get out of my face. You don't have the energy, the energy to keep up with my pace. I'm already gone. I cherish the women. Did a few The Mexicans love me And I do too I'm winning elections And I'm showing such class I brag on erections And I kick major ass known connection but now it's the apologies of the week we're so sorry daylight philadelphia 
A public address announcer has lost his job over a remark about a Native American player during a lacrosse game. The Philadelphia Wings said announcer Shoddy Hill had been permanently removed from his role with the team and suspended from assignments at the Wells Fargo Center. He did something bad at a center named after a bank that <laughs> has paid $5 billion in fines. Georgia's swarm forward Lyle Thompson of the Onondaga Reservation in central New York said Hill said, let's snip the ponytail during Saturday night's game and fans then began to shout calls to scalp him. Hill said his words weren't racially motivated but reflected a lack of knowledge of heritage and history. After the game, Thompson, the uh, Native American member of the Georgia Swarm, tweeted, I know Philly takes pride in their ruthless fans, but I didn't know it was like that, LOL. Now I know, just haven't heard stuff like this since high school. The National Lacrosse League, who knew, said the league and all of our member clubs have a zero-tolerance policy for any derogatory or discriminatory statement. The statement by the in-arena host... The statements were inappropriate and the necessary disciplinary action will be taken swiftly. Hill issued an apology on Twitter. I'm deeply sorry for my insensitive statements during last night's games. My words were poorly chosen, were not intended as racially motivated. I understand the profound hurt my words have caused. I offer my sincere apology. My words do not reflect my personal beliefs, but represent a lack of knowledge on heritage and history. I am in the process of reaching out to speak directly to the Thompson brothers in hopes of providing... A direct apology. Shawnee Hill has been permanently removed from his role with the Philadelphia Wings and has been suspended from all in-arena announcing assignments at the Wells Fargo Center. Electric scooter company Buried has apologized for demanding that the publication Boing Boing remove an article about a $30 way to hack bird scooters. That was first reported by the BBC. This was our mistake, and we apologize to Cory Doctorow. Doctorow writer and journalist for the Boing Boing website. Bird had originally issued Boing Boing and just like to keep saying Boing Boing. A notice of copyright infringement saying the article that the writer had promoted sales of an illegal product designed to bypass the scooter's proprietary copyright protection. Dr. O's story published last month described a large number of bird scooters getting abandoned on city streets and impounded by the cities. Electronic Frontier Foundation legal counsel for Boing Boing responded to Bird's copyright infringement accusations, suggesting that under the First Amendment, Dr. O was exercising his freedom of speech. Bird, in its apology, now retracted his accusations and attributed its shaky legal argument to its staff being overwhelmed by scooters being stolen and misused. Maybe if they had docks where you could put them when you're through with them, that wouldn't happen. Dr. O said Bird had issued a non-apology. Daylon Los Angeles Green Book screenwriter Nick Vallelonga has issued an apology for an anti-Muslim tweet he wrote in 2015. In the tweet, he expressed support for the later proven false claims that Muslims were celebrating in New Jersey following the 9-11 terror attacks. That's a uh, theory popularized by a president who's celebrating his second year Second anniversary of his swearing-in today. Quote, I want to apologize. I spent my life trying to bring the story of overcoming differences and finding common ground to the screen. And I'm incredibly sorry to everyone associated with Green Book. I'm especially deeply apologized to the brilliant and kind Mahashalam Ali, 
and all members of the Muslim faith for the hurt I have caused. That's his co-star in the movie. I'm also sorry to my late father who changed so much from Dr. Shirley's friendship. That's the friendship depicted in the movie. And I promise this lesson is not lost on me. I will do better, he says. Please adapt my next book for a movie. One of several Democrats to have thrown their hat into the ring for the upcoming election is already apologizing for past remarks against the LGBTQ community. Tulsi Gabbard campaigned against equal marriage rights in the late 1990s and early 2000s alongside her father. First, let me say that I regret the positions I took in the past and the things I said. I'm grateful for those in the LGBT community who have shared their aloha with me throughout my personal journey. She said her many of her earlier beliefs were formed by growing up in a conservative household. Now she's blaming her father. She announced her campaign for president this week, coincidentally with the apology. In addition to her father running an anti-gay political action committee dedicated to protecting traditional marriage in the, those early days, he was also the director of a group called Stop Promoting Homosexuality and hosted an anti-gay radio show, Let's Talk Straight Hawaii. Gabbard credits her time spent overseas in the Iraq War as helping to cause the shift in her views. So, at least one good thing came out of the Iraq War. That was worth a trillion. New Jersey gambling regulators are looking into a sports betting tournament held over the weekend in which some competitors were unable to make bets on the on an NFL playoff game, costing them a shot at a million-dollar top prize. You knew this was going to happen. The New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement says it's reviewing the DraftKings tournament, the first high-profile high tournament of its kind, since sports betting was legalized in New Jersey. Entrants were restricted to betting on the two NFL playoff games. The first game ended shortly before the start of the second one, leading to some bettors not having their winnings from the early game processed in time to wager on the second contest. DraftKings apologized for the situation, but said it had to follow its own rules. Once you legalize something, you got to follow the rules. Washington's embattled Catholic leader, Donald Wuerl, has been under fire in recent days for untruthful statements regarding what he knew about the alleged sexual misconduct of his predecessor, Theodore McCarrick. Now Wuerl has apologized, saying he forgot he knew about the allegations. He apologized to former priest Robert Cholik, and then sent a letter to the priests of the archdiocese. Pope Francis accepted Wuerl's retirement as archbishop earlier than expected last fall, as the cardinal was being pummeled by criticism over his handling of abuse cases when he was the Pittsburgh bishop, and also by suspicions that he was not being fully honest about what he knew of the McCarrick scandal. In the letter, Wuerl said he forgot he was told in 2004 about Scholick's complaint against McCarrick. In 2004, Wuerl had taken that complaint to the Vatican. It is important for me to accept personal responsibility and apologize for this lapse of memory. There was, the never, there was never the intention to provide false information, the letter said. He said he apologized to Cholik, whose requests to meet him were rebuffed for several weeks prior. This business as usual. Netflix post-apocalyptic film starring Sandra Bullock, Bird Box, uses footage from a real deadly train crash in Canada from 2013. And CBC News says the survivors of the disaster are outraged. The Lac Megantic, 
rail disaster. That's uh, in Quebec. Runaway trail, runaway train derailed, causing its millions of gallons of oil to start a major fire, killing 47 people and destroying the town's downtown area. The mayor told the CBC she noticed Bird Box using footage from the real-life tragedy in some scenes. She said that showed a lack of respect to those affected. It's hard enough for our citizens to see these images when they are used normally and respectfully on the news, said the mayor. Just imagine to have them used as fiction, as if they were invented. The mayor said she also noticed that Travelers, another fictional sci-fi Netflix series, also uses footage from that train crash. The president of the production company of Travelers, Peacock Alley Entertainment, apologized telling the CBC they got the footage from a stock house called Pond 5. We sincerely apologize, had no intention to dishonor the tragic events of 2013, said Carrie Mudd of Peacock Alley. We're already working to uh, replace the footage in the show. Spokesperson for Pond 5 also apologized, saying the company was recently made aware that the footage was taken out of context and used in entertainment programming. We deeply regret this has happened and sincerely apologize to anyone who was offended, especially the victims and their families. Be careful. Don't be in a disaster. You may end up in a Netflix sci-fi post-apocalyptic drama. This from the Orlando Sentinel. Two years ago, the Florida legislature issued a heartfelt apology to four black men wrongly accused of raping a Lake County woman in 1949. On Friday, the Florida cabinet pardoned them. Now it's our turn. This is the Orlando Sentinel editorial. We're sorry for the Orlando Sentinel's role in this injustice. We're sorry that the newspaper at the time did between little and nothing to seek the truth. We're sorry that our coverage of the event and its aftermath lent credibility to the cover-up and the official racist narrative. We're sorry that reporters and editors failed in our duty to our readers, to the community, and to the Groveland Four, those are the four men wrongly accused, and their families. The paper inflamed the public several days after the incident publishing on the front page a cartoon that showed four empty electric chairs and labeled the Lake County Tragedy. The Groveland Four coverage in the um, Morning Sentinel editorial warned that attempts to use legal technicalities in defending the men, quote, may bring suffering to many innocent Negroes, unquote. Today we ask the public's pardon for a period when our coverage fell short, unquote, the Orlando Sentinel. And finally, Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon apologized to the Malaysian people for the role of one of his former bankers in a huge Malaysian scandal, the 1MDB scandal. Quote, it's very clear that the people of Malaysia were defrauded by many individuals, including the highest members of the prior government, said Solomon. Tim Leisner, who is a partner at our firm, by his own admission, was one of those people. For Leisner's role in that fraud, we apologize to the Malaysian people. Unquote. A Goldman Sachs apology. That doesn't happen every day. The Apologies of the Week, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And one other item related to um, the second anniversary of the swearing-in of the current occupant of the White House. In the run-up to his election, of course, we were made aware of many of the um, less distinguished business Enterprises in which he had had a part, at least, at the very least, le- uh, lending his name to them, uh, in many cases doing much more. 
But the lending of his name was enough to convince a lot of people that the enterprises were legitimate, which they turned out not to be. Chief among them, Trump University.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this very special edition of the show commemorating two years since the swearing-in of the uh, current occupant of the White House. And uh, I'm grateful that you uh, joined me on this, as we like to say in America, this journey. Let's do it again next week. What do you think? Same time on the radio, whenever you want it, on your other audio device of choice. Tell you what, be just like none of this ever happened if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Typical show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, Hawaii desk. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Thomas Walsh at WWNOFM New Orleans for help with today's program. The email address for the show. Yes, you can email me. Yeah, I read them. I never get them, but I read them. How could I read them if I don't get them? That's for you to ponder this week. Anyway, all that and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts all at harryshare.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. Don't ask me why. from Century of Progress Productions and originates from WWN on New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from the home of the homeless. <laughs>